0: Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. It's a a black hardback book. You can take that, open it up to page 852. 852 is Mark 15. I want to, as you're finding Mark 15, just kind of update you on a couple of things. Uh, We've had some great local mission opportunities the last few weeks. VBS down in Pine Mountain went very well. Our people helped out down there with all that's happening. If you're interested in helping with what's going on in Pine Mountain, reaching Kids for Christ, we'd love to talk to you about that and share all the opportunities that we have available for you there. Uh, We had a great opportunity at uh, Camp Viola just to share Christ with a bunch of children. Had a great week there a couple of weeks ago. A lot of kids heard the gospel, a lot of seeds planted. Then yesterday... We changed oil for single parents. We did that all morning. Uh, there was a group of people, Stephen Webb led a group down there that changed oil. A lot of his shop students from True Power down there working. Praise the Lord for those guys that worked so hard all morning. Then there was a group of people in the lobby that ministered to the people that came through, shared the gospel, invited them to church. Fantastic morning. Awesome to be a part of. Neat what our church is doing. Many more opportunities. So we'd love for you just to pray about how you can plug in what the Lord would would call you to do. You don't have to go across the world to be a missionary. You can do it right here. You You could have done it sitting right out there in that lobby yesterday morning if you wanted to, and there are other opportunities for you to do that. We'd love to plug you into that. You pray about how the Lord would use you and would accomplish great things through you for his kingdom. Okay, we're continuing our study this morning in the Gospel of Mark, winding this thing down this week the crucifixion, next week the resurrection, and we're going to be done. And so I just want to kind of catch you up on where we are and then challenge you a little bit this morning before we jump into the text of how I want you to think and how I would pray the Lord would speak to you. Jesus at this point in our study has been arrested. He's been falsely accused. He's been sentenced to crucifixion. And so we're at this point, they're about to lead him to the cross. And I just want to pause for just a second And kind of orient your mind and your thinking, your thoughts just a little bit by reminding you that what we're gonna study this week with the crucifixion of Jesus and then next week with his resurrection is central to our faith in Christ. Like it's the crux. Like everything else matters, but this matters more. Okay, Paul helps us understand when he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. In fact, Paul goes on to say that if it's not true, we should be pitied. <laughs> we're foolish. Like if we're wasting all of our time and effort and energy and Jesus really wasn't crucified and really didn't come back from the dead, then we're foolish. One writer said it like this, the cross of Christ is the focal point of the gospel. Here, God dealt definitively with the problem of human rebellion And made provision for the salvation of men. And so I just want to really challenge you and encourage you just for a moment to do something this morning. Something maybe you don't typically do. I think as believers, and many of us are believers, we kind of hear the story of the cross and it's something we've heard before. We're familiar with it. We know the story. In fact, you could probably come up here and recount a lot of things I'm about to say, but I think if we're not careful, we kind of glaze over what Christ did. We forget about it. We we kind of minimize it. And I just want you to understand this morning that what Jesus did at the cross changed everything. It changed everything changed everything about what your life is like. It changed everything about your eternity. It changed everything about history. And so I want you to see this morning the glory of the Lord in his crucifixion. I want you to understand his suffering and his sacrifice. And I hope that as you understand that, you will be moved more than ever by his love for you and all he accomplished. So let's take a look now, if we would. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse... 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. "'Hail, King of the Jews!' And they were striking his head with the reed and and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross." And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel... Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's stop there just for a second. And I want to think through the cross and the crucifixion and especially the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And the first thing I want you to see and understand, and I really want to kind of drive this point home and really think through it for a while together. Truth number one, there is, there was and there still is purpose In Jesus' suffering, there was purpose in Jesus' suffering. I don't want you to think for one second that this was an accident or that it was something Jesus didn't have full control over or it's kind of out of his hands. I want you to see and understand there was absolute purpose in his suffering. Now, now, Jesus suffered greatly. I, I started Monday. I try to start Monday mornings with my sermons because I want to kind of get it into my heart and into my mind a little bit so it works on me through the week and I can think about it and go back and change it and work on it again. And as I started uh, Monday morning, I just I typically print out the text and then I just read through it a bunch of times. And I make notes and I highlight it and I start noticing things and words and questions I might have. And as I was reading through it, I was just, I was just struck again and reminded again of the absolute suffering of Christ on the cross. Physical suffering, we're going to see it in a minute. Emotional suffering, we're going to see it. Spiritual suffering, as He bore our sins on the cross. And so I want you to see, I want you to see it with your own eyes, how the Bible describes, in just a few verses, just chock full of the suffering of Christ. So for example, verse 15, I'm just going to run through these quickly. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released from them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Basically beat him to a pulp. Right? A, a leather whip that probably had pieces of glass or bone or big round lead balls on the end of it were used to literally rip the flesh off of his back. Verse 17, And they clothed him in purple cloak. Together they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on. You, you imagine the long... Probably two three-inch thorns being just driven into his scalp, into his head, the blood and the pain. Verse 19, they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him. Verse 20, when they, uh, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloth, put his clothes on him, led him out to crucify him. Verse 26, the inscription and in the charge read the king of the jews they 're mocking him they 're making fun of him verse twenty nine those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads verse thirty save yourself and come down from the cross verse thirty one the chief priests and the scribes mocked him, saying to one another he saved others, he cannot save himself verse thirty two even those who were crucified with him reviled him right the, the, the physical pain and the physical suffering and the emotional pain and, and the mocking All of these things endured by Christ. That's easy for us. It's easy for me, I guess, I should say, to take a look at the cross and see great beauty in it. And there is. The symbolism of Jesus and what he accomplished and what he did for us, it's a beautiful picture and a reminder. But it's hard for us because we live in this Western world separated from this idea of crucifixion and execution. It's very difficult for us to understand the pain that Jesus actually endured. Understand the suffering that Jesus went through. And so I want to read for you, and I don't, I'm not going to get graphics, so you don't need to be concerned. I want to read for you, written by a medical doctor, what a crucifixion looks like. One writer thinking about crucifixion, just to kind of put this in your mind, said crucifixion was a punishment reserved for non Roman citizens in which excessive cruelty was unleashed. On the lowest and the most defenseless classes of society. In fact, the word, the English word excruciating, excruciating comes from the Latin word, which means crucifixion. So here's how a medical doctor explained crucifixion. He said, At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground. Now, now most scholars now believe that probably there was a single beam, that he would have carried the beam with him, and then the vertical piece would probably already have been in the ground. There's differing opinions, but it's possible he just carried a single beam with him. So at Golgotha, once they get to the place, the beam is placed on the ground. Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood, The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of his wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist, deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side. Repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly. Right, That's important. But he leaves some flex and movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the posts. And a sign reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is placed backward against the right foot, both feet extended, toes down, and the nail is driven through the arc of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places the full weight of the nail excuse me, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet, and there is searing agony of that nail through his feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles. Nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Remember now, he's hanging. So he has to push himself up on his feet in order to breathe. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get get even one short breath. Hours of this limitless pain. Cycles of twisting, terrible cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough timber, then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain, and Jesus gasps, I thirst. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his last cry, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. the, the, The cross is worse than anything any of us could ever imagine. It was designed to humiliate, to cause great suffering, to inflict the most possible pain. And the hope of the Jewish people and really the Romans at the time was we will kill Jesus. We'll get rid of this guy. His fledgling little band of followers will run off and hide. It'll be the movement that's ended. We'll stop it right now. We don't have to worry about Jesus anymore. That was the hope. That was what they had planned in this crucifixion. Now here's what you need to understand. This is where the application begins. All of the pain... And the suffering and the mocking and the punishment and all of the isolation. The purpose of his suffering, right? We're talking about the purpose. The purpose of his suffering was to bear the pain and wrath of your sins. Like Jesus took that pain for you. Like you deserved that pain. I deserve that pain. That our sin caused him to be crucified. You understand that, right? I'll never forget when we were doing faith, they had these pictures that would help illustrate certain points. And they had this one particular picture, and I ended up buying it and had it framed. It's a picture of this guy. It's strange. You're going to think it's silly that I didn't quite get it when I first saw the picture. But it's, you may have seen it. It's a picture of a man holding uh, nails and a hammer. And he's, he's slumped over and it looks like he's passed out. And behind him, behind him what appears to be Jesus is holding him up. And the first time I saw that, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. It took me a while to kind of look at that picture and stare at it before kind of the full force of what was taking place in that picture really hit me. It reminded me, first of all, that it's my sins. Like I'm carrying the nails. You understand that, right? If it weren't for my sins, Christ would not have been crucified. If it weren't for your sins, Christ would not have been crucified. We carry the nails, we carry the hammer. And even in our state of unbelief and unknowing and, and, and not even able to control what we do, as we, in this guy's sense, had passed out, Jesus still holds us and loves us. Do you understand that? It's an incredible picture of his love for us. Of the suffering he endured to take our place. Now here's the problem. We look at these soldiers, and I read this thing. I don't know how many times I read this account, the the pain and the suffering and the agony, and I just went back over it, and I read it again, and I read it again, and I read it again. And like the more I read it, and I I, I was cutting grass yesterday, I was listening to it on my phone. The more I heard it, and the, the more I listened, the angrier I got. Like, how could these people, this is an innocent man. I mean, set Jesus aside, if any person is... Forced to go through this sort of a punishment. It would, it would be difficult for us to see and, and endure. But what if it was an innocent person that not did anything wrong? The anger and the, the frustration kind of would, would build in me. The more I studied it, the more I read and the more I listened. And then the Lord reminded me. And this is the problem. This is the application for me. As these people walked around the foot of the cross and mocked him. And made fun of him. And, and threw insults at him. I wonder how many of us in the way we live our lives still mock him. Now I thought, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a generalization, right? That's a generalization I could make. How could I bring this home? Or What are some specific things I could show you to help you understand and see how maybe we mock Christ still? Now, here's where we're going with this, right? I'm not trying to beat you down by saying this is how you live and you're terrible and you shouldn't do it. I'm trying to show you our sin and help you understand there's a better place for us to be as we worship Christ. There's a better way for us to understand. So I've got six things, six specific things that demonstrate in our lives the way that we still mock Him. Put the first one up, if you would, please. When we minimize the effects of sin in our lives, we mock Him. Do you understand that? Like, our sin's not a big enough deal. You didn't really need to be crucified. Well, He did. And He was. And when we minimize sin, it's as if we're mocking Him. Go to the next one. When we justify apathy toward the things of Christ, we mock Him. Like We justify our apathy in Christ, don't we? It's pretty common. And when you do that, when you justify your apathy, it's one thing to be apathetic. It's another thing to justify your apathy. When we're justifying our apathy as if it's no big deal, we're mocking Jesus. He died for your apathy. You understand that? Next. When we fail to understand the true sacrifice he made for us, we mock him. When we see the cross simply as something beautiful and a picture of forgiveness and we forget the death and all the suffering and all the pain and why he did it and it was me that deserved to be there and not him, we mock him. Go to the next one. When we worship self instead of worshiping Christ, we mock him. Go to the next one. When we accept his grace and mercy without giving him our obedience, we mock him. Can you imagine... Lord, I'm going to accept your blessing. I'm going to accept your grace. I'm going to accept your mercy. I'm going to continue to pray to you to ask you to do great things for me, all the while knowing I'm not really interested in obeying anything you tell me to do. Man, the irony in that. The final thing when we don't believe he can really do more than we could hope or imagine, we mock him. These people didn't believe he could really come down, they were mocking him. <laughs> Oh, if he said he could destroy the temple and build it back in three days, surely he can come down off the cross. When we don't believe Christ is really strong enough to work and strong enough to do the things that we believe the Bible says he can do, when we don't believe those things, we mock him. And so we need to remember his suffering, we need to remember his purpose, we need to remember his love for us and all he did. To sacrifice. Now let's continue. Look at verse 33. Let's continue through this. Mark 15, 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Right about three hours there. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lamana sabachthani," which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Siloam. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's stop there, right? We, we see in Jesus that there is a reason, there is purpose for his suffering first. Here's the second thing I want you to see. There is joy in Jesus' obedience. There is joy in Jesus' in his obedience, right? This was not an accident. Like God didn't wake up one morning and just go, you know, I mean, I guess today's as good as any other. Why not, Jesus? What we understand instead, scripturally, is that from the beginning, God had this incredible plan, right? We, 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 we think about Christmas. I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of the year. I love the music, the decorations, and the history, and I just, I just love it. It's just a fun time of year for me. And we celebrate the birth of Christ as well we should. But what we have to understand, what we need to understand, especially in this context, is that Jesus was born to die. He started that journey to the cross in the manger. Now here's the incredible thing. Here's what I want you to understand. This is, this is significant for us, this idea of joy and obedience. Understanding the pain and the suffering, the emotional and the physical and the spiritual, all that Jesus endured on the cross. I want you to listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says. Looking to Jesus, right? We see Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, now listen to this, for the joy. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You understand that? Hebrews says that Jesus, understanding what he was going to have to go through, endured the cross with joy. That's what the Bible says. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now how in this world do you find joy in a cross? It's a good question to ask. Like the pain and the suffering, the beatings, the crown of thorns, the mocking. How does anybody find joy in that? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. Jesus didn't find joy in, in the, the actual pain and all he dealt with. His joy came very simply because he understood he was obeying his Father and carrying out the plan that the Father had created before time began. Right, Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 speaks of Jesus. It calls Him the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. you understand that? Now wrap your your mind around this idea that Jesus was crucified before the world was created. Kind of a deep idea to try to understand, isn't it? Here's what we get from this scripture. God had a plan from the beginning. Before He created this earth, before He created Adam and Eve before Jesus was born in that manger, before he walked to Golgotha, before he was crucified, from the beginning, God had a plan. Jesus found, now listen, Jesus found absolute joy simply in obedience. Now I want you to see a couple things. This This is fascinating to me in the Old Testament. And By the way, the Old Testament has hundreds and hundreds of prophecies of Christ. But there are two I want you to see because they're just really compelling to me. And I want you to see them. I want you to understand them. The first one is in Psalm 22. If you've got your Bibles, I'm to flip back to Psalm 22. You can. You don't have to. You can stay in Mark 6, 15 because I'm going to show it to you on the screen. But Jesus, in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, as he's about to die, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what you might not understand is that Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22. Now, Jesus grew up reading the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament had not yet been written when Jesus was born. Jesus grows up reading the Old Testament, understanding the Old Testament. He's memorized, I'm sure, all of the Old Testament. He wrote it, I guess he memorized it. So he says, when he, in verse... 37 of Mark chapter 15, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Just Just to insert very quickly here, just a little bit of theology. God the Father cannot look upon sin. You understand? And so when he looked down on Jesus Jesus had taken your sin and my sin, the sins of the world. God the Father could not look upon Jesus because he now carried the sin of the world. So Jesus comments, why are you forsaking me? Why have you turned from me? He's quoting Psalm 22. Now that's interesting enough, just the idea that he's quoting a psalm. But here's what you need to understand. This is significant. I don't have time this morning to go into Psalm 22. I wish I could talk for an hour about it because it's just chock full of stuff. But I want to draw your attention to one verse in particular. Psalm chapter 22, verse 16. By the way, you should go home and read this on your own. The whole chapter. Psalm 22, verse 16. Now, Psalm, is written, Psalm 22 is written about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And it says, For dogs encompassed me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced. My hands and my feet. Jesus is quoting this. He's quoting Psalm 22, right? The dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Imagine Jesus on the cross, the people that are are calling for his death, evildoers that have surrounded him, have, have encircled him. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Now we see that and we read crucifixion, right? It's very easy to go back in history and understand things. But here's what you need to understand. This is fascinating. Psalm 22, written about 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. Crucifixion wasn't used until 500 years later. So Psalm 22 is written 1,000 years before Christ. 500 years later, crucifixion is used. Now, you don't have to believe me. Go do the research. Your own. I'm going to read out of Wikipedia. I love using Wikipedia for Christian things because it's not typically Christian. Wikipedia says this, the oldest crucifixion was a man named Polycrates who was put to death in 522 B.C. by the Persians, right? So just just track this with me now, okay? When David writes Psalm 22, he's speaking of a man who's going to be encircled by evildoers, dogs are going to surround him, his hands and his feet are going to be pierced. David had no idea what he was writing. He knew who's following the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knew God was leading him. He knew probably he was looking ahead to one day who Messiah would be. But when he wrote about hands and feet being pierced, he didn't understand crucifixion because it had not been invented. God gives us this beautiful picture of who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before his birth. It's a beautiful picture of who he was. It's a beautiful picture of what he did. And I get this, this is important. Go back to that first main truth, the second truth. Jesus found joy in the cross because he was fulfilling the will of the Father. Now here's the second one I want you to see. You don't have to flip that. I'm just going to read it because I'm running low on time here. Isaiah 53, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I had this conversation with my children just a couple of weeks ago because it's so compelling to me. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And yet, listen, as you're reading it, think about Jesus and his crucifixion. He, this is Jesus, was despised and rejected, right? We've already seen that in Mark 15. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. It's interesting, I don't have time to go into this, but at the end of that passage in Mark 15, only the women remain. All the men at that point have hidden their faces from Jesus. They're scared. They've run in hiding. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he bore, right? He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. You think about the cross. We esteem him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now here's what I want you to see in all this. Go back to that second truth. Jesus found absolute joy in obedience to God the Father, regardless of the cost. He understood full well what the cross meant. He understood the pain, he understood the agony, he understood the suffering, physical, emotional, spiritual. He, he got that, and yet he did it anyway. So here's the point of application. Here's the question for you: Is your joy bound up simply in your obedience to the Lord? Is your joy bound up simply? In the obedience of the Lord. Like my joy very oftentimes is bound up in my own obedience to myself. Like when I do what Adam wants to do, sometimes I find joy in that. The question we have to ask ourselves looking at Jesus and his example, are we finding absolute joy simply by obeying the will of God in our lives? Because I I would say for, for the vast majority of Christians, myself included, oftentimes we don't find joy in obeying the Lord, we find joy in obeying ourselves. Christ is our example. Christ went to the cross with absolute joy because he knew when he did it, he would be obeying and fulfilling the will of his Father regardless of the cost. Now let's continue. We need to finish this thing up. Verse 37, Mark chapter 15, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last. And two significant events are about to take place. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. we, We see purpose in his suffering We see joy in his obedience. And finally, number three, we see salvation in Jesus' death. There's salvation in Jesus' death. Two very significant events take place there in verse 37 and following. The first one is that the curtain or the veil in the temple was torn in two. Why is that important? That's important because the temple was built with this veil to separate kind of the common area from the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies is where the Lord resided. It's where the Ark of the Covenant stayed. The chief priest would go in there once a year. He would cleanse himself. There were rituals he had to go through, and they would tie a rope to his leg in case he went in there and did something he wasn't supposed to do. They could pull him back out. Nobody went into the Holy of Holies. Nobody in the Old Testament, this is important, nobody in the Old Testament had face-to-face conversations or relationships with God the Father. It wasn't possible. Genesis 3, the Bible tells us that before God spoke to Adam and Eve, he went down into the garden, he walked in the cool of the day. Can you imagine God the Father walking with you in the garden, speaking to you? having a relationship with you. Genesis 3 sin enters the world. All that changed. The rest of the Bible is the plan for us to be redeemed back to God. So the temple veil was significant. It signified and demonstrated that we can't come directly to God. He's too holy for us. Our sins will not allow that. The chief priest had to cleanse himself and go through all this ritual before he could go in there once a year. He's the only person allowed to do it. When Jesus dies, the Bible says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's symbolic. It reminds us that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we now have access to the Father again. You understand that? The relationship between the created and the creator has been restored only because of Christ. When that thing was torn in two, it showed us we now can come to Jesus, And then finally, the, the, maybe the most interesting thing, the centurion, right? This is a, a Roman leader. He's a soldier. He'd seen it all. He probably stood over hundreds and hundreds of executions. And yet when Jesus dies, he makes this very interesting comment. He sees the way in which Jesus carried himself. He sees the way in which Jesus died, and he says in verse 39, Truly this man was the Son of God. Not a criminal, not an outcast, not someone to be feared. He understood that the death of Christ brought forgiveness. He understood that the death of cross brought peace. He understood that Jesus was actually who he says he was. Now here it is. Here's the question you have to answer. The centurion recognized Jesus as Messiah. Do you? Because if you don't, you need to get that right. That will affect not only the way you live your life here, but it will affect your eternity. Jesus came and he died and he rose again. He offers salvation to all who believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of the cross. As difficult as it is for us to hear and as as painful, as gory oftentimes as it is as we think about, Father, it offered to us this beautiful picture of salvation and love and grace. And it gives us a chance to restore that broken relationship through the death of Christ through His forgiveness through His blood and so Father I pray right now for anybody in this congregation right now that doesn't know or has never received has never repented of their sins Father let this be the moment let their eyes be open to the truth that they pray Father they would accept you and and hear from you that you would open up their mind to salvation Father they would repent of their sins turn their life to Christ and Father we're going to praise your name for everything that you do in the hearts of these precious people all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You can stand. The altar is open for you to come and pray. Speak to me. Accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. You respond as we sing together this morning.